ran across an article a few weeks ago about a man named Garth Callaghan. Garth is 44 years old. He has a 14-year-old daughter. And ever since she was in kindergarten, he has been writing her little notes on napkins and placing them in her lunch every day. Quotes, uh, when she was real young, they may have just been little sketches, things she could understand, uh, as simple as I love you, or uh, sometimes more complicated quotes that he enjoys that express his philosophy on life. About three years ago, Garth was diagnosed with a terminal cancer, a kidney cancer, and given about an 8% chance of survival for the next five years. Uh, His daughter was, at the time, 11 or 12, and he had promised her that every day until she graduated from high school, he would write her one of these little napkin notes. But of course, now he had a dilemma because he didn't know if he was going to make it to her high school graduation. And so he said, uh, sweetie, I'm going to keep my promise to you. And so what he did is he calculated the number of days between then and when she was to graduate high school, figured out how many days she was going to be in school eating lunch, and sat down and wrote 826 napkin notes in case he didn't make it, to place in her lunchbox every single day to express how much he loved her. I read that story, and and like many of you, it struck me at a a very emotional level. Having two daughters myself, I thought, uh, what a great way to communicate to them his love. Uh, It struck me for a couple of reasons. One is just the simple discipline that it takes to do that every single day. Those of you who have kids who are in school, uh, if you're like me, some days they're just lucky to get lunch at all, right? (laughs) You kind of toss them a cheese stick on the way out the door and hope they find nutrition during the day. And so I thought, uh, what an amazing deal that he would sit down every single day and write this kind of a note. Uh, But the second thing that struck me is the certainty of his promise. And in the article he said, I made a promise, I want to keep this promise to her. And here's what I thought. I thought, well, she's 14 years old. What are the odds that between 14 and 18 she's going to do something he disapproves of. Uh, Pretty close to 100%, right? It might be something small. Maybe she'll fail an algebra test, forget her homework, get detention, talk back to her parents. It could be something we consider big. Maybe she gets pregnant, finds herself on drugs, drops out of school. There could be any number of things that she does, and yet there was no indication from this promise that it was conditioned on her obedience. He never wrote down, assuming you keep a B average, assuming you stay out of trouble, assuming you're kind to your mother and me, assuming this, assuming that, I will write these notes. Instead, he said, I've written the notes and it is a guarantee that you'll get one every single day. The promise is not conditioned upon her obedience, but instead springs from his love that doesn't change regardless of what she does. And as you read a story like that, I think most of us think, wow, not only would I like to be a parent like that, I'd love to have a dad like that. I think everybody sees that and thinks, I'd love to have a father who keeps promises like that, who lavishes love upon me like that. Some of you perhaps did have that kind of a human father. Others did not. But as we look at the scripture, the beautiful thing is that's exactly the kind of father that we see in the Bible. 
is a God who keeps his promises whether or not we're good. For some of us, saying that almost feels like heresy. For some of you in here, that's a very uncomfortable notion. Why would God keep his promises even if I'm bad? Even if I disobey? Even if I am not a worthy recipient of his love? Uh, But you really can't escape the fact that beginning in Genesis and moving all the way to Revelation, we see a God that makes lavish, extravagant promises to his people and then he keeps them even when they disobey. Now, it is certainly true that obedience brings blessing upon blessing. And it is certainly true that sin devastates and destroys. But throughout the scripture, we still see that there are promises God makes to his people that he never breaks. As we've looked at the life of Abraham, it's been interesting to follow through Abraham's life. And what you see is a God who makes a promise to Abraham, Genesis 12. He says, Abraham, you go to the land I'll show you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will multiply your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham goes and he obeys sometimes. He obeys God part of the way, occasionally but sometimes he doesn't. And we got to Genesis 22 last week and we see really the pinnacle of Abraham's obedience where Abraham takes Isaac, his only son, the son of promise, to Mount Moriah, the son whom he loves, and prepares to sacrifice him because God has asked him to sacrifice. Now at the last minute, God intervenes and provides a ram and reaffirms this promise to Abraham. And it's tempting to believe that it's on the basis of Abraham's obedience that God gives this promise because God reiterated it right there in Genesis 22. But what we forget is that God gave the promise years and years and decades earlier to Abraham. And he fulfills the promise even when Abraham disobeys. Now, as we move forward from Genesis 22, we're going to see that kind of promise-keeping God in action again and again. After Genesis 22, we see Isaac saved, and then immediately, Genesis 23, you have the death of Sarah, the burial of Sarah, and then Isaac finds a bride, Rebecca, and it says that Rebecca comforted Isaac upon the death of his mom, Sarah. And Isaac is set up now to be the recipient of all of these promises God has made to Abraham. Uh, Rebekah is at first barren and they pray to God and then Rebekah has twins, Jacob and Esau. And if you read the story to that point, you go, man, this is amazing. God is going to give Abraham all of these descendants just like he promised. And he sets Abraham up, I mean, Isaac up to be the recipient of these covenant blessings. And everything looks good until you meet this family. And you start reading about Isaac and Jacob and Esau and you go, these are not mature, admirable people. And in fact, the first event that is recorded in the life of Jacob and Esau, which Brian will talk about in more detail next week, demonstrates the character of these two men and of Isaac. He's got these two sons, and it says Isaac prefers Esau. Why does he prefer Esau? Well, because he likes the taste of meat. That's Isaac's whole reason for liking his elder son. Because he likes the taste of meat. That does not sound like the judgment of a spiritually mature person, does it? 
And you see Jacob, quickly, the first thing you see of Jacob in his young adult life is he tricks his older brother out of the birthright. And you see Esau, who sells away his birthright for a bowl of stew. Jacob is described as smooth. He's not only smooth of skin, he's smooth. And he's deceptive, and he's a scoundrel. Isaac is a passive person who makes decisions by materialistic values. And Esau doesn't value those things that matter. And, and so you have this question that emerges right at the beginning of the Isaac story as we move into the Jacob story. And the question is this. How can God keep his promises when his people are sinful? Okay. Or to put it another way, how can God keep a promise to people like this? How can God keep a promise to people like this? We've just gone from the pinnacle of Abraham's obedience to a cycle of deception and evil and passivity and a failure to appreciate the things of God. How can God keep his promises when his people are sinful? And the answer as you walk through the rest of this story is very simple. That God fulfills his promises because he is faithful, not because we're good. Let me say it again. God fulfills his promises because he is faithful, not because we are good. And so as you walk through the life of Isaac, you get a sense that there are promises God makes that he will keep, no matter what. For the Christian, this is incredibly good news. You say, yeah, but what about sin? What about disobedience? And the answer from a biblical perspective is that the justice of God and the grace of God meet and kiss at the cross. And Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sin, all of our disobedience. And the good news is that if you trust in him, there are promises that will never be broken. The promise of eternal life the promise of adoption into God's family, the promise of the Spirit of God that seals us toward the day of redemption. And nothing you do can overturn those promises. And I know that there are some in here that you wrestle with that. Either in your own life, there are things that you have done maybe a year ago, maybe 10 years ago, maybe yesterday, that you sit here this morning and you say, does God really love me? Or maybe he just loves me a little less. Or maybe I am the less favored child because of what I did. Or maybe you're the person that sits in here and you look at the one sitting next to you and say, how could that person come into God's presence and worship when I know what they did? And the message of the patriarchs is that God keeps his promises. God's love God's promises are not conditioned on our goodness, but on his faithfulness. And so as we look throughout the life of Isaac this morning, we will see the nature of this promise-keeping God. So let's begin. We're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26 this morning. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. 
The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. The first thing we see right out of the gate is this, nobody earns God's promises. Nobody earns God's promises. Here's what I mean. At this point in the narrative, what has Isaac done? Nothing. Nothing. All that Isaac has really done. Let's think about Isaac's life up to this point. He went up the mountain with Abraham. He was tied to a bundle of sticks while his father nearly sacrificed him. He's pulled off the bundle of sticks, replaced with a ram. He's gotten married. He's had a couple of kids who are scoundrels. There's nothing Isaac has done to earn this promise. And yet God appears to him right at the beginning, really, of his story and says, Isaac, here's what I'm going to do for you. I am going to multiply your descendants. I am going to give you this land. I'm going to give you everything I've promised to Abraham. And by the way, Isaac, you know it's true, don't you? And you know it's true because you remember what happened when that knife was over your heart. That I am a promise-keeping God. Now, of course, the astute reader at this point goes, but wait a second. God says, because Abraham obeyed, isn't the promise earned by Abraham? Didn't Abraham earn this promise? And now it's passed on to Isaac. Well, the answer is no. No. Abraham did not earn the promise. A couple of ways we know that. One is from Galatians. Paul, writing about Abraham, says, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And here's what we see in the life of Abraham. When is the promise first given to Abraham? When he's living in Ur, doing what? Worshiping idols. When is the promise reiterated to Abraham? Genesis 15. What is Abraham doing when God cuts the covenant with Abraham and gives him this amazing promise. What is Abraham doing? He's unconscious, asleep. Now, what happens in Genesis 22? Abraham finally recognizes the character of this promise keeper. And we find out from Hebrews 11 that Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac because he believes what? That the God who made the promise would raise him from the dead. See, Abraham agrees to sacrifice Isaac, not to earn the promise, but because he already believes the promise. And the promise transforms him. And then what does God do? It's not that God says, oh, by the way, this was always conditioned on your obedience. You always had to earn it. Instead, God says, Abraham, because you've done this, he expands the promise. And he says, I will greatly bless your name. I will greatly multiply your descendants. I will do this, do this, do this because you have obeyed. It's not that the promise was earned by Abraham. It's that Abraham's obedience expands the scope of these promises and provides a security for Abraham and all of his descendants that God will keep the promise. And so Abraham's obedience becomes this means for further blessing and then a deepened security. They know for certain that all of Abraham's descendants will be blessed. And he'll get to see it even in his lifetime. 
And so God, right at the beginning of Isaac's story, says, Isaac, you've not done anything, but I give you this promise. It's based on my character. It's based on my faithfulness. How many of you in here have a birthday? A few? Okay. So most of us have a birthday. I want you to think for a minute, when you were a kid, uh, you probably got birthday parties from your parents from time to time. Or if you're a parent, you give your kids birthday parties. Now, what do they do to deserve that birthday party? They were born, right? It's literally the easiest thing you ever earn, isn't it? You're born. On your first birthday, they give you a party and they will invite the relatives and they will give you cake and they'll put a little hat on your head and they give you gifts and the grandparents give you gifts and you've got a house full of toys and stuff. You can't even fit it all in the closet. And what has that one-year-old kid done to contribute to the welfare of the household? <laughs> Nothing, right? But provide sleepless nights and dirty diapers and Lots of tears and exhaustion. A few laughs along the way. But you haven't earned it. God says to Isaac, Isaac, because I chose Abraham, I chose you. You belong to him. You belong to me. And he reiterates this promise right at the beginning of Isaac's life to say, Isaac, you didn't earn it. I think this is critical because if we're honest, there are those of us in here that on some level believe that we earn God's promises, or maybe we just earn a little bit more than the guy sitting next to us. There are probably a couple of types of people in here. There are those that believe that because I'm better, because I'm able to keep things together, because at least on a visible level, I don't sin as much as that guy. God loves me a little more. And then there are those in here that are thinking, eh, God probably loves me less. And he might take his promises away if I don't keep peddling that little cycle to do everything God tells me to do. Perhaps my favorite parable in the New Testament is in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Where you have these two sons, remember, and one of them goes to his father And he says, hey, dad, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live here anymore. I don't want to be a part of your family. Give me all my inheritance now. I'm taking it. I'm walking away. That's the equivalent of saying, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me the money. He goes away. He blows the inheritance. And he comes back. He's broken. He's poor. He has nothing. And the father looks, and you see this father looking from a distance, and he sees the boy, and he runs. He gathers up the hem of his robe, and he runs, runs, runs to the boy, and he embraces him, puts a robe on him, the ring that gives this boy authority again in the family, and he says, slaughter the calf. We are having a party because my son, who was dead, is alive. He's my son. Nothing changes that. And the other character is the older brother that many of us identify with. The older brother sits there and goes, wait a second. Every single day, Dad, I've been sitting out here working for you, doing everything right. You never gave me a little goat. And I love what the dad says. Hey, son, uh, everything I have has always been yours. You get that? 
You never had a goat because you never asked. You never understood my lavish provision because you've been out there in the fields trying to earn sonship when it was always yours. And in fact, the last scene in that parable is the father trying to plead with that son, come into the party. Enjoy the blessings of being my son, but he won't do it. Why? Because love to him that can't be earned will not be accepted. God says to Isaac, I will fulfill this promise. Not because you're good, Isaac, because clearly at this point he's not. But because I'm a promise keeper. God's promises are absolutely unearned as you walk through the scripture. In fact, unearned to the point that the next thing we see is that even sin does not invalidate the promises of God. Once God has made it, even sin doesn't invalidate it. Look with me at uh, verses 6 through 11. Hey, so Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. This should sound familiar to you, by the way, uh, from the life of Abraham, who does this twice. Okay? And as you go on, it says, It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window, and behold, Isaac was, literally, it was uh, Isaacing his wife, Rebekah. That's, that's what it says. If you remember, Isaac's name means laughter. And it says, Isaac is laughing with his wife. Isaac is being Isaac. He is Isaacing around. And the idea is that Abimelech looks and he sees an intimate moment between Isaac and his wife and realizes, not his sister. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now again, this should look familiar from the life of Abraham, but you realize what's going on is Isaac is so afraid, even after God has just reiterated this promise, Isaac is so untrusting that he is willing to give his wife away to Abimelech. And I love that it's Abimelech, the pagan ruler, who says, what are you doing, man? You could have gotten us killed. Abimelech believes in God's power more than Isaac, the recipient of the promise. And yet watch what comes immediately following this. So Isaac lived in that land, verse 12, and reaped the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich. And continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you're too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Now he camps in the valley of Gerar. He gets into a number of quarrels with the locals about wells. And they're fighting over these wells. Finally, Isaac finds room for him and his people. And then when we get down to verse 23, it says, Then Isaac went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he 
built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Again, up to this point, what has Isaac done worthy of this promise? Nothing. In fact, all that Isaac has done is lie about his wife and give her away to Abimelech or be willing to give her away to Abimelech. Isaac is not a role model of obedience and trust and righteousness. And yet immediately following on the heels of this big sin, it says the Lord blessed him and blessed him and blessed him and expanded his flocks and expanded his holdings and expanded everything in his life. And then God says, Isaac, listen, you can trust me. I will bless you. And I think at this point, Isaac starts to believe because he builds builds an altar. He calls upon the name of the God who keeps promises. Because even in his sin, God keeps his promise. If God is not the one who saves sinners, then God is not the one who saves. Romans 5, Christ died for us when? Not while we were good, while we were yet sinners. If you know Jesus, there is nothing you could do, think, say that invalidates the promise of eternal life. As you look at Romans chapter 8, you have this rock-solid assurance. Paul says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, neither anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the promises of God are not conditioned on me being good, but they are given because he is faithful. Because they are unearned, they cannot be taken away. And we see that in the life of the patriarchs, ultimately because of what Jesus does. God forgives not because he's unjust. In other words, God doesn't forgive simply because he says sin is no big deal. He forgives because he poured out sin on his son, at the cross. Jesus took all of our sin and all of the punishment of God and bought us a promise of adoption into his family. And in fact, in Galatians, we become recipients of the blessing given to Abraham. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing because of the faithfulness of God that is promised to Abraham, promised to Isaac. God's mercy and grace meets us in our sin because he's faithful. Several years ago, I read uh, a book written by Jim Baker, the uh, televangelist from the 1980s. And those who are of a certain age will remember Jim Baker from the 1980s. Jim Baker was a uh, huge televangelist who ultimately was caught in a very nasty scandal. 
convicted of stealing around $5 million from his ministry, from those who donated to the ministry, uh, to top it off, was involved in an affair and a blackmail scandal to cover up the affair and went to jail for all of it. The man was a pariah. In Christian circles, a pariah. In secular circles, all around the world, this man was synonymous with cheating, with stealing, with lying, with immorality, with hypocrisy. I mean, he was considered the lowest of the low. After he got out of prison, he, he wrote a book called I Was Wrong and talks a bit about how he got to this point where he believed he deserved God's blessing because of a particular theology he held, but also simply because he believed if God's blessing me, I ought to be able to take whatever I want. Went to jail. Many of his friends, of course, distanced themselves from him. He wasn't a popular guy. But he tells this story. He says, one day in the prison, I was cleaning toilets and the guard came by and said, you have a visitor. And he said, who's here to see me? And the guard said, Billy Graham. And he said, I thought, that's got to be a joke. And he walked out and there was Billy Graham. And there were reporters who had heard about it and press who had heard about it. And he walked out and he said, why are you here? Uh, Associating yourself with me is not smart for your own image, really, at this point. And he said, Graham waved him off and he said, you're my friend. That doesn't change. He sat down, he prayed with him and Baker said, when I got out of prison, it was the Grahams who gave me a place to stay, gave me a car to drive. Help me get back on my feet again. Now, my guess is some of you hear that story and you think, why would he do that for that guy? I mean, isn't that guy just going to take advantage of your mercy and grace again? Maybe. Seems naive, doesn't it? And yet, as you look at the scripture, what we see is this, a God who says what? I am your friend in Jesus Christ. I am your father. I am the type of father whose promises remain even when you sin. If they don't, then they're not worth the paper they're written on. Because all of us would have invalidated his promises by our own unfaithfulness. And that's what we see in the life of Isaac. You see a God who keeps pursuing And what happens ultimately in the life of Isaac, which is similar to what we see in the life of Abraham and in the life of Jacob, is that the unrelenting promise-keeping of God, the faithfulness of God, transforms. As you look at uh, toward the end of the life of Isaac, the last words we have in Isaac's story come in Genesis chapter 28. Now, remember, the rest of Isaac's story with Jacob and Esau, again, is not positive. And Brian is going to get into more detail about that, I believe, next week. But if you remember, the, the rest of the story with Jacob and Esau is, is Jacob continuing to deceive Isaac in cahoots with his mom, by the way, Rebecca. Esau continuing to be sort of half-witted and unwilling to see the value of God's promises and Isaac continuing to be passive and you walk that through Genesis 27 where you have this tragic story of the older son whom Isaac favors losing the blessing, losing his birthright and Jacob stealing it out from under him. And it's a devastating, devastating story and you would think Isaac ought to be angry with Jacob. He has every right to be. And yet Genesis 28, 
Isaac's last words to Jacob. Look at verse 1. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham. To you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. See what's going on? Well, wait, Jacob stole the blessing. Jacob doesn't deserve this blessing. And yet all of a sudden, I think Isaac is beginning to believe that the God who makes promises, even to scoundrels like Isaac, even to liars like Jacob, keeps them. And so Isaac begins to see as God sees. And he can, with joy and hope, Say, Jacob, God's blessed you. And just as he kept the promise to Abraham, just as he kept the promise to me, he'll keep the promise even to you. Jacob has a lot of work to do on himself. And yet the promise is what transforms these men. See, they don't change or clean up or scrub their appearance or their works to earn the promise. Instead, God gives it. And even through their sin, he keeps it, he reiterates it, he says it time and again, and eventually they begin to believe it. And it changes them. Those who believe that unmerited grace, that the lavish grace of God will lead us into sin, are not thinking clearly about the lavish grace of God. Because when we begin to come to terms with how deeply God loves us in Jesus Christ. It transforms us. We say, I want to love and serve and obey a God like that who would love a scoundrel like me. Uh, When I was in third grade, and really all throughout school, uh, I had a problem often with my teachers. I was generally an obedient kid, But one of my problems was that I would get into these giggling fits in class. And I would try, as hard as I would try, I could not stop laughing once I started laughing. And uh, it sounds funny, but as a child sitting in class, it's horrifying because you're trying to stop and you cannot. And you know you're going to get in trouble, but you can't do anything about it. And I can remember sitting there, and, and this happened to me one day in class. This kid behind me was clowning around. I started laughing, and I was trying to stop, and I could not stop, and I'm trying to bite my lips, and the tears are rolling down my face, and I'm giggling. And finally, the teacher looks at me and says, all right, enough. You go out in the hallway until you can get it together. And this teacher had a punishment for us, and that is uh, third grade. We had to write our numbers starting at one all the way to a thousand. Right? When, when you're eight, you might as well be a billion, Right? I went out in the hall and the laughter at that point stopped and the tears began to come and I started to write my numbers and I wrote them all out and then she wrote a note to my mom about how I had acted that day and sent me home and said, you need to give this to your mom, she needs to sign it and I remember on the bus that just horrible feeling, I got to go home and give this note to my mom, she's going to punish me again. 
It's going to be awful. I just know it's going to be awful. She's going to send me packing, right? I'm out of here, eight years old, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> so I get off the bus and I'm walking to mom and I just, I saw her and I began to cry because of the reality of what I knew I had done wrong and what I knew was coming, handed her the note, began to cry, said, mom, I'm, this is what happened. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to. And she looked at it. She looked at me. And I remember still her saying, excuse me. I remember her still saying, I think you've suffered enough. I think you know. I don't think you're going to do this again tomorrow. You wrote your numbers. Now go play. She gave me a hug and she said, I love you. It's okay. You know, and there's lots of punishments, of course, that my parents gave me growing up that I don't remember. But why do I remember that moment? Because that was one of those moments where I came face to face with the reality that I was unworthy of forgiveness. And grace met my sin. What's interesting is at that moment, I didn't decide, hey, this is great. I've got to get out of jail free pass. Go laugh it up tomorrow. (laughs) Right? No, instead, I wanted to do what was right because I'd been shown unconditional mercy. I wanted to be the kind of person that understood that love and gave it out to others. You see that the unconditional promises of God are what transform us. That in Jesus Christ, right there in your sin, God says, because of Jesus, I'm not angry with you. He died for you. He rose again. One of my favorite historical people from the history of the church is Martin Luther. And I know I'm not alone in that. I was reading, there's a great biography of Luther called Here I Stand. I was looking back through it this week. Luther began his young adult life as a monk. And he was, by all accounts, a perfect monk, or as perfect as you could be. He did everything right. He was terrified of the wrath of God because he had this deep and abiding sense of his own sin. And he recognized that my sin is worthy of hell. And so he was afraid. In fact, Luther has been said, if ever a monk could have gotten to heaven through his monkery, I was that monk. All right. But as he began to study the word of God, he became face to face with the mercy of this promise-keeping God. Here's a quote from Luther. He says, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn. And to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate. Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet. In greater love. 
If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. You see what Luther is saying. He's not saying that God doesn't hate sin. Instead, he's saying that all of the hatred of sin, God poured onto Jesus Christ. And so now Luther says, I got it, that God gives me his righteousness, not because of my monkery, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did. It changed his life. It changed the church. It changed the world. All of the conditional forgiveness of the system that Luther was raised in didn't change him or transform him. It only made him hate God because he knew he could not earn God's promises. What transformed him was the reality that God had freely given them and nothing could take him away. That's what we see in the lives of the patriarchs in Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons. We're going to see this very clearly as well. And then in the life of Israel. Remember, Genesis is written to a generation wandering in the wilderness. Why are they wandering there? Because of their unbelief. And yet over and over and over again, God reiterates these promises. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So the question then, again, how can God keep his promises when his people are sinful? God fulfills his promises because he is faithful. Not because we're good, but because he is faithful. As we close, just a few applications to take home with us. One, trust, trust God's promises. In Jesus Christ, if you believe in him this morning, you have eternal life that cannot be removed. The spirit of God lives in you. You have been adopted into his family. He will never, ever unadopt you because of what Jesus has done. If you haven't yet trusted in that, Know that God offers a rock-solid assurance and promise of eternal life, of his grace because of Jesus. And if you trust in him, that he died for your sins and rose again, you have that assurance that he loves you forever and ever and ever and never will remove you from his family. So trust God's promises. Worship the promise keeper. In response to all God has given in Jesus, our lives, our words, our songs, our attitudes are to be a response. To say, come and join with me as we worship the promise keeper who met me in my sin and gave me life. And preach God's unwavering love and faithfulness to a world that believes we can somehow earn merit with God because of what we do. Preach God's unwavering love and faithfulness and say, this is the character of God who made you, who loves you, who gave his son to die for you and will never, ever take it away. God keeps his promises because he's faithful, not because we're good, but because he loves us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. 
and the, the truth and just the shattering reality of the grace of God. Father, I pray that we would understand how much you've done for us in Jesus and that it would transform us into men and women who desire to obey, who desire to love you more, not because we can earn your favor, but because we already have it. Thank you, Father. Be with us this week as we worship, as we proclaim you, and as we serve you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.